Radio Land, Podcast Bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, the managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And today we're talking with George Proshnik, whose new book is Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gershom Sholem in Jerusalem. I'm really excited to talk to George today because I have my one George Prochnik story is that George also wrote The Impossible Exile, which was published a couple of years ago. It was about Stefan Zweig. Right. And it has a beautiful cover. And I wanted to read it for a long time. But one of our co-workers at LARB has kept it on her desk for months. And she's guarded it with her life. Uh And I've tried to intimidate her by staring at it, by telling her how much I want to read it by commenting on the cover, but she won't give it up. And so I've at least gotten my hands on Stranger on a Strange Land. I know what I'm getting you for your birthday. Yes, thank you. Best shoes. (laughs) Okay, well, let's listen to our interview with George. So today we're talking with George Proshnik. George has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Forum, and Los Angeles Review of Books, and he's editor-at-large for Cabinet Magazine. His book, The Impossible Exile, Stefan Zweig at the End of the World, received the National Jewish Book Award for Biography Memoir in 2014. Proshnik is also the author of In Pursuit of Silence, Listening for Meaning in a World of Noise, from 2010, and Putnam Camp, Sigmund Freud, James Jackson Putnam, and the Purpose of American Psychology. His newest book is Stranger in a Strange Land, and it was just published by Other Press. Thanks for being here, George. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So Stranger in a Strange Land is partially about the life of Gershom or Gerhard Scholem, the philosopher and historian. Maybe you could start by telling us about Scholem. Sure. Well, he was a complete prodigy, is the first thing to know, who grew up in Berlin. He was born in 1897 to an affluent but not hyper-rich family. And from a very young age, he rebelled strongly against the entire milieu that he came from. He was adamantly opposed to what he saw as the intensely bourgeois circles that his parents ran in and the nationalism that came with that. And so one of the early ways that he tried to actualize this sense of rejection was by engaging with the then very nascent, and we should speak a little about what it was at that point, but the then very nascent Zionist movement. But he also involved himself with socialism and with anarchism. And in some way, these different radical movements all revolved and meshed together in his thinking. What he felt was that Germany was on a disastrous course and that German Jewry was assimilating to the worst elements in that culture. And long before anti-Semitism was a powerful force in Germany. He felt that Jewish culture itself was dead and that the only way to really renew, the people demanded some kind of radical action. Mm. And can you tell us a little bit about that burgeoning Zionist movement? Yeah, well, the main thing to know is that there wasn't any doctrine for it at first. It took lots of different forms. And in fact, I saw in his journals, at one point when he was trying to determine what steps Zionism should take to realize itself. He was coming up with a kind of a wish list of what Zionism should pursue. And he said, what Zionism needs to be is a group of people who believe that 
everyone has to have a rigorous historical consciousness. You have to have misery over the conditions in Europe. You have to have a sense of social responsibility towards all mankind. Mm. And you have to experience general spiritual anguish. That was it. So there was no mention of any of the elements that many of us associate it now with as a political movement. And in fact, Sholem, even after he eventually emigrated to then-Palestine in 1923, he didn't go there with the sense that there should be a Jewish state. And there was a strong contingent from Central Europe who went there just in a kind of vague sense that the Jewish people, but a small number, he wasn't thinking in terms of massive immigration, could go there and serve as kind of an, a spiritual, intellectual elite that would then have the power to positively influence Jewish life in the diaspora and ultimately humanity at large in ways that were against war was another very, very strong aspect of his own private philosophy and something that he tried to carry into his early Zionism. And he was raised in a, sounds like, very secular household. Very secular. In fact, he used to say of his father that he was an extremely advanced assimilationist, so that even among the secular families that he knew, often they would go to synagogue maybe on the high holy days. But as he put it, his father would only go to synagogue if it was then an opportunity during the fast that takes place on Yom Kippur to go to a very good restaurant that was across the street from the synagogue and where the head waiter would welcome him and say, those who are fasting will be served in the back room. Right. So, uh, that know, sounds familiar <laughs> in terms of my own family. I see. Yeah. Oh, but so how did he get into a deeper relationship to Judaism? How did he become more religious and eventually more mystical? Right. Well, I think that the whole question of how religious he ever became is tricky. He certainly believed, he believed in God from a very young age, but he didn't ever really seriously practice ritual law, Jewish ritual law. You know, there was a brief period when he flirted with it, but it was a matter of months. He joined an Orthodox party at the same exact same moment that he joined a socialist party and mm -hmm. was excommunicated from it within less than a year. So his interest in mysticism, critically, was an historical interest. He saw Kabbalah and all of the different channels that make up Jewish mysticism as having been suppressed by the mainstream religion, by the desire among particularly a group of Jewish intellectuals in the 19th century who wanted to make the case to the world that Judaism was a very rational religion, that it fit right in with all the nations, and that by suppressing this in the interest of assimilation, in fact, Sholem felt that they had suppressed the most vibrant, most life renewing element in Jewish thought. He felt that really, for him, the most important, I believe, aspect of the Kabbalah, in his view, was the ways it engaged with particular historical moments and tried to redeem something. It was a very dark history. So critically, for example, with the exile, one major school of Kabbalah, maybe the most important, took place in the 16th century, and it centered around one Rabbi Isaac Luria, and he really saw all of the Lurianic Kabbalah as almost a meditation on exile and redemption, one that insisted that rather than just being a sign of the Jews' helpless victimization, reflected a greater exile within the universe, within the cosmos. I mean, he even argued that within Lurianic Kabbalah, a part of God was exiled from himself, and everything was displaced because of some cosmic screw-up at the moment when creation began, even before life began. Sholem felt that by projecting the crisis of Jewish history 
onto a much larger panoramic vision of the universe, that the Jews were given some sense of purpose that was in opposition to their ghettoized, dejected, squalid state in Europe in particular. Mm-hmm. So there was a line in your book that really struck me, which was the widow of Sholem, after his death, said that perhaps the greatest love of his life or the love of his life was Walter Benjamin. And it seemed to me that the two men, they were friends, they were very close friends, and that they lived dichotomous lives that were in some ways parallel to each other, but obviously ended quite differently. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between them. No, it's a very important question. And in fact, she said he was, that Benjamin was the only person that Sholem ever truly loved. You know, thinking also in part about our own moment, one thing about Sholem and Benjamin is that they lived their lives in resistance. In early adolescence, there was just the overwhelmingly, again, bourgeois and assimilationist society within Germany that was ramping up its militarism. And then once the First World War happened, There was all of the nationalism and jingoism went into overdrive, and both of them, in different ways, fought against the reactionary elements in the interwar years, and then obviously with Hitler's ascendancy, the role of resistance changed yet again. And in Sholem's case, he ended up after emigrating. Benjamin, as you said, commits suicide in 1940, but when Sholem emigrates, he's fighting many of the same trends right in then-Palestine and after the creation of the state. So the two men shared a sense that Europe was on a disastrous course. Benjamin tried to work within that and believed that it was still possible until very, very late to salvage something. Sholem did not. But Sholem was immediately struck on meeting Benjamin. And Benjamin was five years older. He saw him speak for the first time in, I think it was 1913, and then met him in 1915. And there was a quality that Sholem felt persistently about Benjamin that was hieratical, priestly. There was something elevated. There was something about Benjamin's intellect that Sholem, an incredibly brilliant and incredibly judgmental man, felt always incapable of rejecting the force of his thought. Even when they disagreed ideologically, and this happened as Benjamin's politics moved more towards overt Marxism and further away from the language philosophy where they'd found a lot to talk about. And in fact, It's worth mentioning that many of Benjamin's ideas of language philosophy influenced the way that Sholem came at the Kabbalah, just as Sholem's idea of the Kabbalah ultimately influenced lots of Benjamin's ways of coming at not just language, but the, again, the almost mystical potential of politics. Benjamin takes a great deal from Sholem. Their friendship was, in youth, the most important friendship, arguably, to both men, certainly to Sholem. And that never changed. And in fact, during the First World War, when both men had to fight the draft and Benjamin ends up getting out and going to Switzerland, and there's a period in which Sholem is writing Benjamin and Benjamin and his wife Dora became for him surrogate parents. You know, all Sholem could think about was getting out of Germany and wanting to go live in their presence and to carry on some grand intellectual symposium. And in fact, he eventually, Sholem eventually partly by feigning a mental illness and partly, I think, by theatricalizing his real instability, got a diagnosis from the military as a schizophrenic, as a hopeless, helpless, absolute schizophrenic, and he was booted out of the military, and he immediately goes and stays next to the Benjamins, whereupon things quickly deteriorate. Yeah. So that was a, such an interesting part of the book where 
Dora is writing him. So Benjamin's wife is writing Sholem in the voice of her son with Benjamin and saying, you know, that he thinks he knows everything and, you know, <laughs> he's a big problem. And so I sensed there was some friction between Benjamin and Sholem, but I was wondering in your research, is it clear where that comes from or? I think it's partly that Sholem could be an unbelievable pain. You know, mm-hmm. he comes over and all he wants to do is talk metaphysics 24 hours a day. And Benjamin and Dora, they have a young, a very young child. Benjamin's struggling with his own academic career. And this guy shows up who never leaves. He is really this, in a sense, the ultimate nightmare guest, as much as <laughs> as much as Benjamin admired him. He was relentless. And Benjamin would squabble with Dora and Sholem would remain there. And in fact, there are these extraordinary passages in his journal where clearly Benjamin and Dora fight. Sometimes they make up by making love. And this is one wall away from where Sholem is sitting, waiting for Benjamin to come back and finish the chess game or to all have dinner together. And he frets and he says, how can I be abandoned like this? And he refuses to look at the larger situation. And in the worst moment, where things go completely haywire, Dora begins writing in the voice of the infant, Stefan, as you said, really critiquing everything about the way Sholem comes at Benjamin and her. And then Sholem tries to write back to the baby and has these extraordinary passages where he says, you and I, we really get it, and they're cutting us out of things, but we'll manage to triumph somehow. We're the ones who really understand. And then Sholem can't keep it up, and he ends up just writing this sonnet to the baby because he knows that he's beginning to sound ridiculous. But this correspondence goes on through the medium of the newborn for an incredibly long time. It was this vision of also Benjamin that one doesn't usually have of the domestic man. Yeah, you really do not imagine Benjamin sort of making up with his wife after a squabble about something or, you know, waiting for Sholem to just finish his thoughts so they could have dinner. Well, and that side, Sholem could never understand it either. And they would sometimes go off walking in the middle of the night after one of these fights and Benjamin would lyrically say, there is no such thing as an unrequited love. And Sean would say, well, what do you... He couldn't understand it at all because he had just been witnessing this terrible fight and suddenly Benjamin was making this sort of high, lofty pronouncement about what love was. And so at that point, how did Sholem's academic or how did his writing progress? I mean, so he's in Switzerland. How old is he at that point and what happened afterwards? He's in his early 20s and he was always successful uh, in his academic pursuits. He'd originally been toying between mathematics and Jewish thought, Jewish history. And for a long time, it looked like he would go with mathematics, but then he didn't feel that his real genius lay there. And he began discovering Jewish mysticism as a field that up until then, no one had looked at it academically. It hadn't been done. The manuscripts, most of them hadn't been looked at at all for a very, very long time, but only within certain communities of practice. And that's an incredibly rare thing in the history of scholarship to found a discipline. But Sholem really did that. He began taking these texts seriously that had been dismissed by the real Jewish authorities, the gatekeepers of Jewish history, as weird, rambling, fraudulent documents. And he said, no, there's something here that really needs to be looked at. And the ways he came at it, you know, he called himself at one point an archaeologist of the Jewish spirit. And he definitely was using that term archaeologist in a manner that resonated with Freud's idea of the archaeology of the mind. And I came to feel that part of what Sholem did with the Kabbalah was to... Freud takes the unconscious and the id and all these sort of demonic, strange dream forces, and he says these are part of us, but we have to learn how to tamp them down so that they don't take control by becoming conscious of them. 
Sholem similarly was looking at the substrate, the underworld of Jewish thought, but he was saying we need to inject this much more prominently into Jewish identity in order to animate it because it's become so moribund. And the idea quickly resonated with surprising numbers of people that there was something lacking in the rational Judaism, the classic rational Judaism of the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, it didn't have a place for evil, for example. Mm -hmm. It didn't really have a place for any of the elements of what more popular religion, folk religion, the real sufferings of the people. It was all too elevated. And Sholem loved the ways that the Kabbalists grappled with the big questions of desire and identity, sexual identity, and also the possibility of an active force of evil, evil not just being an absence. And what brought you personally to, you went to Jerusalem to visit Sholem's abandoned house, what you found to be an abandoned house, and what brought you to studying Sholem and his work? I didn't come to it through the university, through academia at all. I had read the extraordinary correspondence between Benjamin and Sholem and became somewhat interested and then just picked up his books really randomly and found in them something that to me seemed to be lacking from any synagogue experience that I'd had. The Judaism that Sholem was talking about, which downplayed the importance of the law and the importance of strict ritual observance in any sense, and rather seemed to present possibilities whereby Judaism could be, at least the strands of Kabbalah within Judaism, could be almost a lens onto reality beyond Judaism onto the big questions of the universe that I had grappled with without really having any attachment to the formal elements of the religion. So I started reading him and I read more. And even though I never found my way into in a serious way, I found that I could keep coming back to those texts and take something. And that in Jerusalem, they took on a whole other dimension of meaning. So that when I first went to Jerusalem, I didn't know that I would end up staying as I did for almost 10 years, but still I found myself haunted by echoes of things I'd read in his work and then by the city itself in ways that I wanted to explore further. So is that your, because you also, like Sholem, grew up in a fairly secular household, though your father was Jewish, right? So was he your gateway to, because you convert you converted to Judaism. I do, right. And certainly there was an element of rebellion in me that does resonate with something of what Sholem did. I wanted something more than the bourgeois suburb that I grew up in. And then in New York as well, the overweening focus on money, on on fame, on all those standard tropes of ambition in a big contemporary American city, I felt the absence that I think many people feel and rebelled against, even beyond specifically the bourgeoisness that life without a dimension, a dimension of mystery, was enough. That's part of what Sholem says repeatedly in many different ways about the Kabbalah, is that it recognized the element of mystery in human life. And Sholem says at one point, and this line really resonated for me, my secularism is not secular. And by that, I think he meant that while he didn't attend synagogue with any regularity, that his secularism was always tinged with a hunger to discover more about the unexplained. And that, to me, is a definition of a substantive religious urge, even though it doesn't have a clear object. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. We 
We are lucky to have Elif Batiman back in the studio today to give us a book recommendation. Elif is the author of The Possessed. She's a New Yorker staff writer and most recently the author of The Idiot, a novel. Elif, so we wanted to ask you if you had any book recommendations for us. Well, I'm toggling between two books right now, both of which I'm enjoying enormously. One is Hanya Yanagihara's The People in the Trees, which I'm reading because I found a little life to be so addictive, and I'm a big Hanya Yanagihara fan and asked her to do an event with me, which is going to be at Greenlight in April in Brooklyn. And so I'm reading her back catalog, and People in Trees is completely different from A Little Life. It's an anthropology novel with this kind of like Nabokovian structure. There's a frame of a colleague of a guy who's in prison presents the memoir of this guy who's in prison who then tells you about all of the things that happen, and there's footnotes by the first guy. And it's about this just completely bonkers story about this tribe that they discover in the Pacific where I think it's not a spoiler because you learn very early on that they've learned to eat some kind of turtle that makes their bodies immortal, but their minds age and degenerate. So there are all these kind of like degenerate brained people running around doing completely crazy stuff. And these very peculiar anthropologists are studying them and it's extremely rich and addictive. And the other thing that I'm reading, which I'm pretty much always reading and I have on my cell phone is the discourses and selected writings of Epictetus, the Roman Stoic, who I find very comforting to read at stressful situations, which is basically always. And his main takeaway is that it's not things themselves that are upsetting. It's our opinions about them. So all you have to do is just think like, he's like, there's some things that are your concern. And then there's almost everything which is not your concern. And the things that are your concern is like deciding what you care about and figuring out what your duty is and everything else is not your concern. So like the huge majority of things that you're worried about at any given point are actually not your concern. And if you think that, you can actually manage to feel them lifted off you. And then an interesting thing is I've read this book many times, so I already know what it says. And I can remember it and think it to myself, and it helps a little bit, but it helps way more to reread it, even though it's like watching The Sound of Music, like I can fill in the sentences. And then that made me think that, oh, so that's why people go to church every week. Like they know the they know what it says. They're not going to go be surprised, but it helps to reread. So I kind of learned something about the cognitive process of reading, which is always a plus. That is an amazing recommendation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Elif Batiman, is the author of The Idiot, and she gave us some very fantastic recommendations today. Hanya Yanagihara's People in the Trees and the Discourses and Selected Writings of Epictetus, the Roman Stoic. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with George Proshnik, author of Stranger in a Strange Land. There's such a beautiful part in the book where you talk about your awakening and the story with the fox. I wonder if you could, is that, so yeah. could, maybe you could share that with us. And Sure. Well, I, I had this very strange uh, experience shortly before I, I went to Jerusalem when I wanted to visit the graves of my father's parents. They were from uh, Vienna, originally from Austria, and had been refugees after the Anschluss, after Hitler took over Austria. And his parents are buried in Boston. And 
my father hadn't taken us since we were small children. I went off in a day of terrible weather, just huge, huge rainstorms, and only knew the address of the cemetery. And I got there, and it was this, it was a, I think it was a Sunday, and it was a massive, massive cemetery, no one around. And I drove into the gates and got out of the car and didn't know what to do because I'd gone with such careful planning as I <laughs> often the case. But then I had an extraordinary experience where there was a fox that I caught sight of moving through the gravestones. And I just began following it. It was a beautiful fox. It looked like a flame, deep amber fur. And I wandered after this lovely animal. And suddenly the animal shot into these bushes off to the side of the group of plots where we were standing. And I was standing directly in front of the grave of my of my father's parents. So amazing. So it seemed at that moment a, a, some kind of affirmation about this of this move I was about to make to Jerusalem. And you know, one question that I raise in the book is: I think we can be attentive in all of our lives and find these moments that are that are layered with some meaning that goes beyond what seems rationally possible, something that seems more than coincidence. We have to be very careful, though, in how we interpret them. And I come to question the particular historical lens that I placed over that encounter, um, partly because of an event that happened a little bit before that, when I went to Jerusalem for the first time, not with any decision to move there. And with my then wife, we were trying to get inside the old city, and we, at that point it was very hard to, to find the right roads that would take us there. We kept coming up to gates that didn't allow traffic and we pushed off. And we finally found ourselves in a kind of ravine that rose up to a plain, very, very steep, dusty roads. And we were barreling into, as it turned out, a funeral. And it was a funeral. It was a, it was a Palestinian funeral. We were completely embarrassed and intruding this way and backed out very, very slowly. And it was sort of a strange scene on this huge, empty field. And this was right at the start of the first intifada. I came to wonder whether it was not just as possible to constellate this encounter with the fox and the graves with that moment of my first effort to get into the old city having been repulsed and ending up in a Palestinian funeral as with the funeral of my grandparents' life in Europe. So how we draw these lines, I think we have to look on them as validating, I think, an empathetic social consciousness, not a specific ideological intent, even if the mystery is really there and the mystical possibilities of these moments. Mm-hmm. What, were, what was your experience in Jerusalem during those 10 years? Well, it was initially sort of euphoric because quite apart from any of the more profound aspects of the city, I, you know, I'd been living in New York and my wife was pregnant with her first child. And we went there and with all of the political difficulties of the city, children seemed to run around at all hours of the night in Jerusalem at that point in great groups. Um, They took care of each other. There was a sense that none of the ways that life is boxed in in New York, for young people in particular, but also for adults, it seemed to to relax all that. And the combination of a certain kind of freedom that New York didn't offer with all of the historical depth of the city, which is compressed. I mean, Jerusalem is it's, it's a postage stamp size compared to uh, New York, but it has that same intensity because people fight so savagely, unfortunately, but also with such care about the big questions. So initially, it was kind of wonderful, but I also went very, very blind as to the larger political realities of the place. And part of what was a, a fascinating process for me writing this book was to almost try to create a political portrait of my marriage and of those years 
that I hadn't been able to fill in the pieces at the time. I, I was part of things that I couldn't see. And now, with the distance of time and space, I can look at all of these moments of intimacy and connection and understand what was being left out. And so, as the first intifada became more intense and there were more injuries and, and deaths, and so that it penetrated the, the kind of cocoon of this very nice life that I'd been able to get. I was working, teaching at the university at a level I wasn't really qualified for very quickly, and so financially it also was easier for me. The burgeoning political historical consciousness began to darken the canvas. And then as events moved towards Rabin's efforts to make Oslo happen, and the subsequent assassination of Rabin and the first election of Bibi Netanyahu in 1995, it, it started to seem impossible. And all of these events also had economic ramifications, as the election of uh, a right-wing person can and, mm. and does here in terms of budgets for the humanities, etc. You know, that was Netanyahu, I think, is unspeakably awful. And the fact that he's been in power for so many years right. has had such a such a deleterious effect on, on many aspects of, of existence there, even beyond the obvious political deadlock. In fact, when Trump was elected here, I had a number of people uh, call me on the left in Israel and say, we know what you feel, and it doesn't necessarily go away. That's one way in which looking at these two lives feels meaningless to me now, because they're not about Sholem and Benjamin uh, are, are not about any kind of, they fight really hard and then everything gets better right away. They keep resisting, but they do have moments in this resistance when avenues of hope open up that were not evident and would not have come without the struggle that they're constantly making. And from one angle and from another, they struggle through politics and through their literature and through all of the efforts to keep a humanist culture alive. Mm -hmm. And what was, so So in the book you write about your own experience and also Sholem's being in Jerusalem because he died in 81, was it? Or, I think 82. Or 82. Or, yeah. So he yeah. was there for a very long time. And um, I'm wondering, how did how do you think it affected his faith and study and view of Israel to live there from the 20s to the 80s? Yeah, well, in the 20s, the, 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 the Jewish settlement at that point was quite small. And certainly within Jerusalem, it was very small. And he was part of a movement that, while it was never big numerically, had real influence for a while. It was something called Brit Shalom, the Covenant of Peace. And it was a movement for a binational state. And he was very, very active in this movement. He saw the dangers in every way of ignoring the fact that there was another people already in the land. And once it became clear that there was an overwhelming pressure to create a Jewish state, he worked hard to ensure that this would be some kind of an equitable shared state project. But a number of events conspired uh, as the 1920s went on to make that less and less likely. There were very, very bad outbreaks of violence at the end of the 1920s between the Jews and the Arabs um, with a complicated backstory that I won't go, go into, but in which both sides completely failed to understand what the other was doing and ultimately expressed their blindness through violence. This happened again in 1931, and with these outbreaks of violence, the reactionary forces within uh, the Jewish settlement were strengthened and began more and more to have an influence on the direction that the state-building efforts would take. And then, of course, when Hitler comes to power, 
there was an enormous rise in immigration. Really, the, the rise had begun before from Eastern Europe because of bad pogroms. And suddenly, the Jewish settlement in Palestine was positioned as a solution to the Jewish problem in Europe. And there were many, many people who saw that this was not going to work just because of the numbers. I mean, within Eastern Europe alone, if I remember the figures correctly, there were estimated at one point to be between 10 and 15 million people who needed some kind of refuge wow. from the violence being wreaked upon them. That's that's nothing to do yet with what with what the Nazis would ultimately accomplish. So there was, on the one hand, incredible idealism among this relatively small group of Central European intellectuals who wanted just to make some sort of dynamic center of Jewish thought and identity that could influence the diaspora. And then there was the real bottom line need to somehow save lives. And those two couldn't line up. And as the pressures on Jewish life in Europe became overwhelming, the arguments of those who wanted a more tolerant and shared approach to the creation of a state were drowned out by a sense of urgency. Many people even then saw that this was not the right place for that solution, but where were they supposed to go? And I think it's important whenever we look at how Zionism evolved and these darker strands that we see so much in evidence today, to recognize how much European anti-Semitism was a driver that caused this huge immigration that then started creating political pressures. It, it has a history, and the history is in the West, as the history of uh, many of the events playing out in the Middle East uh, is to this day. Right, right. So Sholem became depressed and demoralized and mm -hmm. increased less and less politically active. After the 1967 war, the Six Days War, he was among the first signatories at the university of a petition to return the West Bank immediately. He stayed on, we might say, the right side of the barricades, but he also felt, and there's a very interesting debate with Hannah Arendt, he, he said at one point to her, I don't care what people think of me politically anymore because the entire world, after the Second World War has revealed itself to be reactionary. So he kept up this idiosyncratic politics. He certainly never advocated the settlements, but he also felt the Jews should survive and that the world at large wasn't accommodating to that project. Mm -hmm. So it put him in a difficult place. And in fact, one famous Jewish philosopher, Franz Rosenzweig, said that of all the Zionists, Sholem was the only one who really came home, but he came home alone. And his position ends up being so eccentric that I think there's real truth to that. Well, I just wanted to ask you before we wrap up about the photographs in the book, because I noticed they don't have captions. I wanted the photographs to be a, a kind of mis mysterious counterpoint in their own right to the text. I, I found some extraordinary archives. The Library of Congress has one of them, an enormous archive of thousands of pictures of pre-state, uh, pre-Israel Palestine. And the pictures, in many cases, don't relate in a very fixed, direct way to passages of text, but I wanted them to echo with the words and hopefully let the reader dream a little bit beyond uh, the specific arguments or historical moments that I'm trying to capture and to also recognize um, something in the visual, I guess, potency of the experience of this place, Jerusalem, which the book is in some way also about pursuing the idea of Jerusalem. Because often when people think of Jerusalem, they think of the political and the the politics, the ideology, the religion, but it's also a very sensorily rich place. And in fact, where the book goes politically is towards arguing that it is by focusing away from the big issues of conflict today and looking more at the environment, at the 
ecological necessity and the urgent need to care for the common land, that there may be solutions. There, there are people working in this area and doing very interesting projects. Some of them have been going a long time. Uh, one of them is called Birds Without Boundaries, which has worked uh, with Jordan and uh, with different Palestinian communities and for a while with Egypt as well, trying to discourage the use of pesticides by uh, encouraging the creation of nests for barn owls and for um, kestrels, which can eat many of the pests <laughs> at, a, at a rate that the chemicals can, chemicals can do, and obviously in a much more healthy way. So there have been these these ways in which I've seen seeds of hope, not in the political process at this moment, but in very localized activities of co-resistance that may become coexistence. Ultimately, someday, we can hope. Yeah. Well, that's a beautiful point to end on, I think. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, George. The book is really fascinating. Oh, it's, it was great speaking with you both. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with George Prushnik. His new book is Stranger in a Strange Land, Searching for Gershom Sholem and Jerusalem. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 